Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Hi, and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement, brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Melissa Chen, and my co-host, who you will hear from shortly, is Angel Eduardo. Today, we speak with Brian Kaplan. Brian is an American economist at George Mason University and the New York Times bestselling author of many books, including The Myth of the Rational Voter, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, the Case Against Education, Open Borders, and most recently, Don't Be a Feminist, which is currently available on Amazon for $12.99. He is also the editor and chief writer for the blog Bent on It and has published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and many more publications. In this episode, we discuss anarcho-capitalism and how it would work in our society, Brian's book, Don't Be a Feminist, the advantages and disadvantages of being a man versus being a woman, Brian's argument for open borders, the burden of immigration on the welfare state, and much more. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Professor Brian Kaplan. Brian Kaplan, thank you so much for joining us. Fantastic to be here. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. I love the excitement. Now, I was introduced to you actually by our producer, Jake, mm-hmm. uh, who is also, I think, of the libertarian persuasion. But we recently had Nick Gillespie on the podcast, uh-huh. who is also a libertarian. But I, I have a sneaking suspicion that you're not, you're not necessarily occupying the same space in that libertarian area. Oh, Nick's a great guy. We've had a lot of great conversations. But yeah, we don't always agree. Of course not. Right. So, so the interesting thing for me and for our audience, I think, is to get into your specific form of libertarianism. How would you, how would you characterize yourself, and what does it mean, and how does it set you apart from somebody like Nick? I will. I don't want to speak for Nick, but I'll speak for myself. Mm-hmm. I would put myself very strongly in the rationalist camp. I'm someone who th- thinks about issues one by one. When someone raises an argument, I like to consider the argument. I don't try to say, well, but I have a general principle that says something, and so I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. I Mm -hmm. like to see truth from facts and to build up a general view for more specific views. That is a lot of what I do. I guess I would also say that, of course, I'm an economist, so economics plays a big role in the way that I think about things. Same time, I also had a long-term interest in philosophy. I'm a big fan of a book by my friend Michael Humer called The Problem of Political Authority, 
which I'm happy to talk mm -hmm. about uh, if you want to. Yeah. Um, I guess that's really where I would situate myself. That's interesting because I, I've, I think Nick is one of them, but I find so many people who are frustrated with philosophers and mm -hmm. philosophy when it comes to questions like economics and like these sorts of policy questions. So I'm curious how you bridge those things and maybe why doesn't it frustrate you in the same way if that's the case? Right. Well, what I would say is that there are two very different approaches to philosophy. There's one where you just start with a big theory about how the whole world has to be, and then mm -hmm. you just deduce conclusions from it. And if the conclusions seem wrong, you say, well, let's go back to the first premise. That's got to be true. Uh, there is another approach where you have a more open mind, you are more tentative about the initial premise, and then you try to test it against counterexamples and thought experiments. This is what my friend Michael Humer, who actually I met in my freshman year as a philosophy student at Berkeley, uh, the approach that he pushes, this is not original to him, but I think he is the best at pushing it, is to say, in any argument, the whole point is you want to start with some premises that would make sense to a lot of people who don't agree with your whole worldview. If all you can do is come up with arguments that follow from your personal, narrow, eccentric premises, you got nothing. What you got to do mm -hmm. is find something that would have broad appeal, something that would make sense to someone the first time that they heard it. And it is from premises like that, that you've got to actually build any general principles that you're going oh. to get that are, if they're going to have any worth at all, otherwise mm -hmm. you're just preaching to the choir. That makes a lot of sense. Well, isn't it when you, you know, look at economics, you assume certain things. And one of the base assumptions is that people are rational. And I believe you wrote this book called The Myth of the Rational mm -hmm. Voter. Mm -hmm. um, is that where you try to deal with this issue? Because so much of, of economics is modeling based on this assumption. And turns out that mm -hmm. people are not very rational. Right. Well, what I'd say is that there are, first of all, there's a bunch of dogmatic economic theorists who have no interest in human psychology and they do just what you say. All right. Then there's a whole lot of more open-minded economists who say, well, we take rationality as a starting point, but maybe that's wrong. And then, of course, there's also a large group of economists who say, we research this question specifically and we've got evidence. I would put myself in that last category. I'm someone who says, let's look at the evidence on human rationality. Let's see whether people are rational overall. Let's see how their rationality varies. Let's see how rationality varies from issue to issue. The big idea of my book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, is that people are a lot more rational when they are making decisions about their own lives than in politics. Politics is basically where people just rip off any pretense to being, being reasonable or listening to common sense and basically turn politics into a religion, whereas it's a lot less common that you see people doing this at the grocery store. Not that you never see it. Uh, you, know, you will see people going and paying double prices for organic food that is not healthier or better, better for the environment. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, you know, when, I li when I overhear people talking about decisions at the grocery store, it makes sense to me as an economist. They say, well, this product costs more, but you actually get a higher quality in this way, or this product looks cheaper, but actually the, if you do it by weight, you're, pay, you know, you're getting a lower price per amount, that kind of thing. All right. Mm. Now, on the other hand, when I listen to normal people talk about politics, that's where I almost always just want to pay face palm, whether I agree with their conclusions or not. <laughs> I mean, in a way, it hurts more when someone that agrees with their conclusions says things that are ridiculous because it's like, man, you're making me look bad. You make me feel bad to be associated with you. 
So just because you happen to agree with me doesn't mean your reasoning sound. Usually it's not. See, any of politics is just such a religion for most people. Something mm. where you have some incredible faith that you've worked out all the right answers using you know, almost no intellectual effort at all. Right. And I'm like, wow, that means it's pretty amazing if you were able to get to the truth with like five minutes of uh, listening to talk radio. But wow, that's uh, really impressive. You're able to pull that off. I wish I could. <laughs> that reminds me of that, that meme where it's like listens to two podcasts and suddenly, you know, their brain is, is exploding and expanding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And here we are on a podcast doing the yeah. exact same. <laughs> My favorite one is, you know, uh, experts agree. Well, can you name any experts on this topic? <laughs> so really, you're just repeating someone else who probably didn't read anybody right. either about what experts think. It's funny what you said about the rationality thing, too, because I, I remember having that same kind of, of light bulb moment. Uh, I think it was, and I think I talked about this before, but I think it was in 2012. That was the, the last, you know, at the end of the world is coming sort of hysteria, mini hysteria that was happening in certain circles. And I remember thinking to, thinking to myself, I never did it because it's too, I, I'm not that big of a dick, but uh, I thought to myself, oh, why don't I have like a sandwich board sign and just go on the street and say, hey, if you think that you're going to get raptured or whatever, just transfer me all your money because I'm sticking around here. <laughs> you're not going to need it. I'm definitely going to need it. So, yeah. you know, go ahead. And obviously the point that I was making is that nobody would do that, right? However yeah. much they claim to believe mm -hmm. this thing, mm -hmm. uh, they wouldn't quite go that far as to transferring all their money into my bank account. Yeah. So One of my big hobbies is publicly betting yeah. people who say ridiculous things. I will <laughs> permit myself a brag and say out of 23 bets that have come to fruition, I've won all 23. Say more about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, those odds are. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've that. been betting people for about 15 years now. Uh, if you go online and just Google my bet wiki, you can find all the bets, both ones that have resolved and ones that have not. Uh, you know, often you'll look at the bets I've made and say, that doesn't seem like something you'd ideologically even want. And, yeah, there's a difference in what I want to happen and what I think will happen. Right. As, as, as is true for all sensible people. Probably my favorite bet that I that is not yet resolved is I do actually have an end of the world bet with... Eliezer Yurkowski, uh, he believes oh, wow. that the machines are going to destroy humanity by 2030. I don't. And you might say, well, how can you bet on that? And the answer is, I just immediately gave him a pile of money. And then if the world does not end, he owes me that back with a lot of interest. <laughs> so that way, if he's right, he actually got to enjoy the last 10 years of human existence with a little extra money. And if I'm right, I will get to enjoy the continued existence of humanity after he's proven wrong. That is diabolical. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, but it's very similar to your, to your, to your sandwich boards, right? You're saying, right. look, if you really think the world's going to end, just you know, give, 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 give me a pile of money. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think it through as much as you did. That might have been good if I did. <laughs> Brian, so, you know, you're, speaking of politics, your uh, politics from what I understand is that you identify as a anarcho-capitalism. In uh, as an anarcho-capitalist, anarcho yes, yeah, yeah and um, I, you know, I've always been under the assumption that anarcho-capitalist is just one step removed more crazy than mm -hmm. the libertarians. Mm -hmm. That's just my layman understanding of it. Mm -hmm. Can you articulate for me just sure. what the difference are between the two and and why you came to hold this position? Right. So I've got a lot of people come to, come to me and say, "So Brian, are you an anarchist?" And I say, "Yes, but not the crazy kind." So I'm, okay. I'm explicitly not what you're thinking. 
Uh, (laughs) What does that mean? I'm not under any illusions that if you pressed a button and got rid of the government, that this would be anything other than a disaster. This is just the way that all radical change works. Even in a system as terrible as Putin's, if the whole Russian government has suddenly disappeared, there'd probably be civil war. And so then what am I talking about? Uh, I think about it like this. Uh, There is a longstanding view that you could have a minimal government, but you've got to have that. And what's minimal? Well, minimal is usually thought to be government has to have a monopoly on police, a monopoly on the courts, monopoly on rulemaking. All right. Now, uh, what do I say about that? First thing is, we don't have a monopoly on these things now. It is not true that if the government allows there to be any private police that you have a civil war and things collapse. It's just false. We have a lot of private police, a lot of private security, some of them very well armed, and yet that exists and people don't even blink an eye about it. No one is worried the security guards are going to be used to overthrow the government, even though in the U.S. actually private security outnumbers all government police by quite a lot. Um, Similarly, for courts, people think, well, you have to have government courts or else there'll be no way to resolve anything. We have a very well-functioning system of private arbitration, which is actually generally preferred by business. It is standard in most commercial contracts to have a clause saying that if there's a dispute, it will be arbitrated, not go to court. And the reason why this isn't used even more is that the U.S. government does not really respect binding arbitration. So even if you have a contract saying that there is no recourse, whatever the arbitrator says, it happens. Even so, the U.S. government will allow you to appeal if you consider it unfair under a lot of circumstances. And then, of course, once you have arbitration, this does open things up to having private rules, which we see all the time. Uh, you know, so how, if, you have, or if you're in a traffic accident with someone else, how often do you actually go to court over it? Over it? Almost never. Instead, your insurance company talks to their insurance company. They've worked out a whole bunch of procedures. Same goes for all sorts of things with you know, not just credit cards, with online disputes, buy something on eBay or Amazon Marketplace, you're not happy. There is a non-governmental system of rules and adjudication that is already in place. So anyway, all of this is there, and it means that it's just not true that these things have to be a monopoly. They aren't a monopoly now. So what do I think of anarcho-capitalism as being? Well, step one is saying, look, we've already got a lot of private provision of what people think of as a monopoly uh, services that government must monopolize. What would happen if we just took the dial of where we are and turned it up one click? Would the world, would society collapse? Right? Mm-hmm. No, it would not collapse if you turned it up a click. How many clicks could we turn it up? Say so pretty obviously we can turn it up a lot of clicks. Like here's a pretty obvious one. It, like you could easily have government get out of commercial arbitration and just say for any commercial dispute, it has to be handled by private arbitration, and there's no appeal to the government. Mm. Right? That would be you know, that. That would, on the one hand, it would seem radical. On the other hand, the idea this wouldn't work. The system is already there. Like what? You know, what really happens when you can appeal to the government is it just makes arbitration less worthwhile because it means you can go at all the trouble of having private arbitration and still have the government overturn it. Right? So we could easily do that. So we can turn this up a whole lot of clicks. All right, and then the final question is, how many clicks can we owe up before there is grave danger to the social order? Uh, this is one where I'll say, well, I'm not sure. I know we can turn them up a lot of clicks. Anarcho-capitalism would mean that we actually take the final plunge and we put the clicks all the way up to the top. All right, now, what would that be like? 
this is one where, again, a lot of people have trouble visualizing it, and that makes a lot of sense that you would have trouble visualizing it because it's something very different from what we have. And I say the real issue is not any inherent problems such a system. It's just a question of is it, is it a system that people uh, could expect to be, would expect to be, would be stable and will therefore be stable? Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, hmm. imagine we're in 10th century Sweden, right? So we're Vikings. All right, bloodthirsty, savage, uh, basically all the true stereotypes about 10th century Sweden. All right, and then imagine one of the Swedes gets up and says, I propose that we have a system called a democracy where we will all vote. <laughs> Whoever gets the most votes gets to be the ruler for a four years, and then afterwards we will have another vote. And just imagine how much the Vikings would have laughed in your face at that. Sounds German, they, they, by the way. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> no, no, German is more like this. No, this is a German accent. No, no. The Scandinavian accent is more sing a songy like it is. Pretty good. All the Germanic languages. <clears throat> so, you know, at the time, everyone would have laughed in your face, and with good reason, which is in a society where everyone expects that the strongest military leader will just take over. No, mm-hmm. no like as soon as you could do whatever voting you want, but it just wouldn't stick because no one expected it to stick. On the other hand, imagine in modern Sweden that there's a ruling party and someone says. I have an idea. How about if we lose the election, we just refuse to leave and murder our opponents? <laughs> in that case, people would laugh at that guy. He's right. proposing the same thing that 10 centuries earlier would have been the only thing anyone would have believed could work. But now people believe that nothing but democracy can work. Again, what is the difference between then and now? It really comes down to expectations in a society where it's widely believed that a system will prevail. That gives it great staying power, great stability. I say that the final transition from democracy to anarcho-capitalism is a lot like that one from monarchy to democracy, where it's you know, if you just imagine changing overnight, then of course it would be disaster and collapse. But it's not because the system is just unworkable. The problem is just that it's hard to get people's expectations to shift. And I don't have any good answer for how to do that other than to say it's happened before. It's not clear. Right. Why couldn't it happen again? Uh, so that's so, where I'm coming from. Again, I'll just say, you know, normally when I give, if I give an hour-long talk on this, I start by saying, I'm going to give you an idea which will sound completely crazy to you, and you'll think it would be a total disaster. And at the end of this talk, I want you to think, I still believe it's going to be a total disaster, but it's no longer crazy to think otherwise. right? Because if you can convince someone of something that extreme in an hour, mm-hmm. then it's going to change their mind right back. That's your brain being so open, you know, your mind being so open, your brain's falling out of your head. Uh, <laughs> I will say I've thought about this a lot. And I understand why it seems crazy to most people. Uh, I'll still stick my neck out and say the idea makes a lot more sense than people think. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think I'm crazy to think so. Yeah, you definitely don't strike me as crazy. <laughs> but don't you think this expectation relies on what people's view of human nature is? Because hmm. in anarcho-capitalism, it feels, as you explained it to me, that you have to assume certain things about human nature mm-hmm. and that it's, it's a very utopian view of it. And so unless we can mm-hmm. convince people to see other people that way, um, it seems hard to, to move the needle. Right. So in you know, 10th century Sweden, I think people would have said democracy is based on a utopian view of human nature. I mean, are the people today so much better than they were back then? We're probably yes. a bit better, but... But a lot better again. Like, is, yeah. is, is, it a, is it a truly a night and day change in human nature from 10th century Sweden to today? 
say we're the, it, you know, people are people are still human beings. The difference, rather, is that now we have a system where if someone tries to go and, and, and become a monarch, people just think you're crazy because it's, because it's so strange. Again, the mechanism in anarcho-capitalism is not everyone being nice, respectful to others. Rather, it's one where you realize, look, if, if your company, if you have a, a private police company, you tax someone else, it's just going to be bad for you because you're risking your lives in a high-risk endeavor that's probably not going to go through, right? I mean, really, like the idea that this could work is no harder to believe than that you could have multiple countries on Earth at peace, uh, which again, if you look at the world a thousand years ago, you might have said, yeah, that can never, you, you will never have peace. Right now, in the, within the European Union, for example, the idea that Norway and Sweden would fight a war just seems ridiculous, right? And why? You know, so I mean, whatever your answer to that is, I would say is a lot of my answer to how you don't need any utopian assumptions for anarcho-capitalism work. You just need enlightened self-interest and people running a mm. business saying, it seems like a really bad idea for us to go and pick a fight with someone else rather than just go and negotiate and try to go along to get along. Again, it's, it's actually, again, it's not so different from an auto insurance company. In principle, an auto insurance company could say, we litigate every dispute. Okay. However, so, so, <laughs> that, that, that is not a good business model because you are going to be drowning in legal costs. Better to go and try to work out a deal with other insurance companies so you can avoid that conflict. So which, which country on earth right now is closest to, to this vision that you have? I mean, apart from Burning Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean, hmm. I mean, honestly, probably like the United States, just in terms of the role that we have for private police, private courts, private rule formation. Mm. You know, like, again, this stuff is, it flies below radar, but it's there. Right? You know, so the internet has yeah. actually done a lot to bring this stuff to the fore. The way that, you know, like, like how people, you know, you know, like basically like 30 years ago was sort of easy to be under the illusion. The reason why markets work is that you can sue people who cheat you. Even then, that was really a pretty silly idea. I don't know anyone who ever sued anyone over anything. It's just a giant pain in the neck and doesn't work very well. So it's not, uh, so instead over, over the past few decades, we have heavily switched to a system where we have private adjudication that is handling problems behind the scenes. And the idea that you would sue someone in order to get good treatment is now almost gone from almost any commercial transaction. You know, if you were not happy with, the, with what happened to you in, an inter, in with e-commerce, you'd either complain to the vendor, complain to the platform, or complain to your credit card company. The idea that you say, I'll see you in court, you know, that's something that happens in TV and movies, but it's a bad joke. It's like, yeah, I'm real worried about that. On the other hand, we have a world where you really want that 99% customer satisfaction rating on eBay for fear that that will destroy your business if you don't have it. That is much more motivating. And it's not utopian to think that. It is just ordinary human beings who want to make money. Yeah. So I, I agree with you that I think the dismissals, you know, on the, the point of utopianism, mm -hmm. I think, are unfair and sort of closed-minded. Mm -hmm. But I, I, yeah, well, so look, I I'm totally not, understand you have a radical idea. Any reasonable person will say, bah humbug, that's ridiculous. And I just accept sure. that as my burden whenever I have a view that's very far from the norm. I don't feel, I don't feel entitled <laughs> to have people give yeah. 50 shots. And I think, I think it's a fair point to say, you know, in, in uh, Viking Sweden, they would have laughed off the idea of democracy or in, you know, the last episode of Game of Thrones. They literally <laughs> yeah, they did laugh it off. The idea. They laugh off the idea of democracy. Yeah, it was actually a pretty good um, argument. <laughs> I don't know. I asked my yeah, said, said, the, said the rich fat jerk. <laughs> right. 
so you know i'm not i'm not an economist i'm nowhere near uh, an expert on any of this stuff and and i just try to think of things as practically as i can in my mm-hmm. sort of framework so what i do when i've thought about this before is kind of just envision a house mm-hmm. and there's 20 people who are roommates in this house and they start off just kind of doing their own thing and the assumption is it'll work out mm-hmm. generally speaking because we have at bottom, the same general interests, right? Like we don't want to, mm. we don't want our stuff stolen, so yeah. we're not going to steal other yeah. people's stuff because nope. that just starts the dominoes going. And you're a lot more. But there will. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're a lot more optimistic. <laughs> well, you know, I don't think 20 people living together would do well at all. <laughs> right. So, but that okay. So I was I was trying to you know give the benefit of the doubt there. I think that you know then there are common areas in the house, right? And then maybe some people are slobs and other people yeah. are not, and. And, you know, certain things must be shared because there's only one of them, right? Like the TV yeah. or, or something, something more fundamental than that. Uh, the space itself, let's say, you know, I want to, I want to have some activity. Yeah. So I want to have some activity on a Thursday, but you also want to have it on a Thursday. And that immediately in my mind kicks off the process of, oh, all right, we're going to have to implement rules mm-hmm. so that we can coexist here. And those rules will need to be enforced by somebody mm-hmm. or some buddies. Mm-hmm. And some, those rules will have to be decided upon and agreed upon by all of us somehow mm-hmm. through some system. And there we go. We've kickstarted this process where we go right back to having mm-hmm. some overarching system, mm-hmm. some, some person or people who are, who are assigned responsibility for maintaining that system. And here we go again. Do you see where I'm going? Like yeah, how- of course. Of course, the idea of anarcho-capitalism isn't everybody does whatever they feel like doing. The idea is that the owner Mm -hmm. of the property decides what happens. That's the difference. So again, of course, in the real world, what you're describing a hotel, it's Moria. And what happens? It's not the way, like we don't need everyone to get together and talk and then agree to a set of rules. Rather, the whoever owns the hotel sets the rules unilaterally. And if you don't like it, don't come here, which is a way Mm -hmm. more functional system than democracy. On which I think almost okay. everyone agreed. If you had to, if it, every time you checked into a hotel, there had to be a meeting with everyone where we discussed rules. Who, no one would want to go to that hotel. It sounds like a terrible hotel. Instead, you right. instead you have an owner who goes and sets the rules for everyone and says, if you don't like it, you can go someplace else. That's fine. This is just my place. Okay. I set the rules. And again, really, the idea of anarcho-capitalism, it's not that everybody decides what, whatever they want to do, regardless of what other people think. The idea is that uh-huh. it's based upon private property. Well, you know, the own the you know, it's my you know, my house, my rules, my land, my rules, and that's where the rules are coming from. Now, mm-hmm. the real issue comes well, like what if what I'm doing on my property is affecting what's happening on your property? And again, there, right. uh, you know, a lot of the answer in the real, you know, like not only like in anarchy, but in the real uh, in the current world is tough luck. If I am if I paint my house in an, an ugly color and there's no homeowner association, then I can paint my house in an ugly color, and you just have to live with it. And that's one that a lot of people don't like, but on the other hand, it's also one where you've got your freedom to not be part of something and say, look, this is just the color of paint. If you don't like it too bad. Uh, then of course there's things like where I have a flamethrower and I am using it <laughs> without, regard, <laughs> without regard to your safety. Right. And that, you know, that is one where just like with auto insurance right now, you have, you will normally have an auto insurance company. If there is a conflict then your then your people talk to their people, and again, the idea of anarcho-capitalism, you know, at least the standard version is people will be well, you know, people go and subscribe to some provider of defense services, 
And then if there's a conflict that is not handled by uh, by a simple contract that already exists, then you know mm. you call up your people, they call up their people, and they've already worked out a system of adjudication. Which again is not utopian. It is what already happens with auto insurance. They don't have to actually work this out. By law, they mm-hmm. could just sue each other over and over and over again. That's just really bad business because it's so expensive to be that aggressive. It is much right. better business to not just roll over and, and do whatever other people want you to do, but to hammer out a deal in advance of neutral rules. Uh, but again, this saves a lot of effort. This means that every person doesn't have to talk to every person about everything. Rather, you have a company, and if you know, your interests impinge on someone else's interests, then the two companies can talk to each other, which again is something that we have in many industries right now. Again, like think about how good your phone would be if you could only call customers of the same phone company. Right? That would be almost a worthless phone. In, pre- in practice, what happens is phone companies talk to each other and they work out deals for interconnection without you ever even thinking about it. They don't go and consult you and say, oh, you know, we're Verizon. We're, we just want to let you know that we're negotiating with AT&T for interconnectivity and uh, we want to get your input. If you come to a meeting, discuss it. Right? No, none of that happens. Instead, it just happens behind the scene. They take care of it. No muss, no fuss. And then mm-hmm. you get a phone that works. So again, that is really the idea behind anarcho-capitalism. Again, like the main thing I would say about it is that if you have a lot of doubts about free markets in general, then of course anarcho-capitalism will sound crazy to you. Right. It's the kind of idea that only makes it will, will only make sense if you already have a general acceptance of markets working well, but you have big doubts about this specific one, and that's where we can have a conversation. Otherwise, it's sort of futile because if someone just says, "I don't see how we can have a free market in education." It's like, well, yeah, if you don't see that, then you're not going to find this remotely persuasive. Uh, So Mm. why don't we talk about something more moderate where we would actually be able to cover some ground? Mm. Right. So, so you think you believe in the power of markets over, over the power of governments. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. But, well, and and especially I believe in the performance of markets over the performance of government. Government's power is awesome. The power of government's is, is just defies description, never mind the power to wipe out half of humanity. Uh, they've also got the power to shut down entire societies, as we saw two and a half years ago. My eyes bugged out of my heads when I realized, like, India freaking shut down. I was talking to friends who know the Indian economy, and like, did they, they people in rural villages in India really lock down? Like, yeah, they actually did. Like, I can't believe that that go that seemingly dysfunctional government in New Delhi could go and make over 1.3 billion people do that, but they did. Uh, my real doubt is not on the power of government, but the wisdom to use it in any sensible way. Uh, where I think that you know, they take the standard for governments to take vast power and then use it with great irresponsibility. Uh, you guys have probably heard of the Spider-Man principle: with great power comes great responsibility. And the way I see government is it's a system of great power and great irresponsibility. But I guess I'm challenging that because I, mm-hmm. I, I grew up in Singapore. And uh-huh. I think Singapore in many ways has one of the freest markets on the economic side. Yeah. Yeah. And yet it, they use a very heavy-handed form of oh, government yeah. to keep it mm-hmm. free. And those two things mm-hmm. seem to go very much hand-in-hand in, hand in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, the, you know, Economically, I think financially, Singapore is freer than the United States. I mean, if you look at mm-hmm. Heritage Foundation, they, they break yeah, it down yeah. to economic and social freedom. And, and yet that is done or that is achieved through the use of 
very heavy-handed government. I'm very puzzled you say that. So I do have a paper in Singapore, and I've read the entire Lee Kuan Yew autobiography. What he himself (laughs) said was that he was really envious of Hong Kong not having fewer democratic checks. He said he could implement more free market policies if uh, Singapore were like Hong Kong. His view was that public opinion and interest groups were preventing him from having as free market policies as he wanted. I mean, like, you know, you know, I agree that Singapore in a lot of ways has a freer market economy than the U.S. does. But again, I would say that the things that the Singaporean economy is most noted for, the ones would be very easy for them to do even less. For example, Singapore has a bunch of government-sponsored enterprises. Correct. It'd be really easy to have a small role for government, just, uh, just sell off the stock and divest. Right? They could totally do that. Right, and the same goes for things like the, you know, you know, the like the, you know, the government healthcare system or the forced savings system. You could say, all right, well, we have a system of forced savings, and now we don't, and now it's tough luck, sink or swim. Uh, so I would say that the main policies of the Singaporean government it wouldn't be hard for them to go and just do less, and they have a free freer market. So I'm a little puzzled by which specific policies in Singapore you have in mind. Well, in, in terms of things like industrial policy or just a lot of state-owned enterprises, like you yeah. said. Um, so how does that give So like, how is that giving, a, giving Singapore a more free market economy? No, it, it's not. By, but, but by many measures, the mm-hmm. economy in Singapore is freer. Like people yeah. tend to find it easier to build businesses there, to yeah. do business there. Right. Yeah, but like and, and there's no capital gains tax. Yeah. There's no, yeah. you know, it's, taxes are in general are very low. There's almost no welfare with the exception of housing, yeah. which is 80% public housing. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very mm-hmm. strange contradiction. I, I only bring that up because it, it seems mm-hmm. like the, the narrative in Singapore is that you do need... Um, you do need some sort of government or heavy-handed government to kind of keep things free. Right. And, you know, so, so, so again, like, like in those indexes that you were mentioning, like heritage, Singapore is losing points for those state enterprises. You know, so Singapore is, is getting high scores despite that because they do so well in other areas. Okay. So, I mean, I, don't th- I still don't think it makes any sense to say that the heavy-handed government is giving Singapore a freer economy. I'd say rather mm-hmm. that... You know, like if you compare Singapore to other economies, you'll see that Singapore does so much better in, in some areas that they can do, get mediocre scores in others and still get a high overall score. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I say you mean you know Singapore, you'd say you know, I'd say it's like a student getting a minuses even though they are out drinking right before the big test. All right, and it's <laughs> like well, so they need to be drinking before the big test to get those a minuses. Like uh, no, uh, they don't. If they would stop drinking, they would be getting an A or A plus. It is really impressive that they're able to get an A minus when drunk the day before the exam, but that's different from the drinking cause the success. I mean, this is one where it's just by the construction of the index, like that stuff cannot matter unless somehow by having a government-owned airline that does something else that that raises other parts of the score indirectly, which hmm. logically possible. I you know again I'm. I'm not a huge expert on the Singaporean economy. I know I knew enough to write one academic paper on it. And I'll say that I did find out basically everything I could find out about public opinion in Singapore and public support for the policies. But you know, that's that's where I stand there. Okay. I'm that's beginning to feel like the kid sitting at the table while mom and dad are talking. <laughs> <laughs> like I have no idea what they're talking about. I'm so out of my element here. But but I did want to close a loop. And just ask you, because it's something we brought up with Nick mm-hmm. when we talked to him, which is about, you know, my, my kind of idea of libertarianism. The first thing that pops up in my head is that moment where 
Gary Johnson got booed for saying driver's <laughs> licenses are not necessarily a bad idea. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so what's your response to that? How do you feel about that? That particular sort of it, that seems to be to be an extreme, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I, I get a sense that maybe to you, it's not that extreme. Hmm. I mean, I would say like, as long as government is actually owning the roads, I totally understand the rationale. There's the question, like, how much how much worse would things be without driver's licenses? I think it probably would make a moderate difference, not too much. <laughs> probably the main thing that would be different would be the elderly losing their licenses, honestly. So in terms of teenagers driving, I think the teenagers that are going to drive without a license are already doing it. And everyone else whose parents is paying attention, they're not going to put them behind the wheel until they can actually drive reasonably well. So I don't, I, I mean, I, the, I think the main thing that actually, that licensing actually matters for is revoking the license of the elderly who are indeed really dangerous, uh, mm. possibly revoking the licenses of a few drunks. Although I mean, they're actually the, one of the main roles of government in many States is trying to make sure that people with really bad driving records get subsidized insurance, uh, which is mm. <laughs> a typical case of powerful government using its power irresponsibly. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, like, like, you know, my, you know, my general view is this: there are a lot of government policies where I would say that either we have good evidence that they make things worse, or we don't have good evidence that they make things much better. And for those, I will just mm. say no way. And then there's some others where there's a strong case to be made given what's going on. And for those, I'll say, yeah, it's probably not a no, probably not a big deal. Um, so mm. that's again, like. I'm not someone you know, like you know, you know like I would never bother writing a piece about driver's licenses unless you know, <laughs> right. I, mean, you know, I might very well say, well, here's a place where they got private roads and here's how they handle it, and that's something that's really worth mm-hmm. thinking about and how do private roads really work. Although I'm honestly I'm much more likely to say, yeah, we've got government-owned roads, and guess what? They're terrible because they generally charge zero price to use them no matter how bad traffic is, which gives us traffic jams every day. Something that private uh, roads would not do. Uh, interesting. And I, I have to ask how how did you arrive at, at this perspective, right? Or is it just something you always believe? No, in? No, like no, not parents? at all. Or how, what was your journey like? Uh, Here is my journey. Yeah. So until I was seventeen, I knew zero economics, and I just believed what people told me. Uh-huh. All right, I was, <laughs> I was interested in history. I grew up in Los Angeles back when my area was Reagan country, but mm-hmm. I never ever heard any pro-market arguments other than like it's better than communism or something lame like that. And then when I was 17, uh, I wound up reading Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, which did get uh-huh. me really excited, but it was also like, hmm, this is the opposite of what I've ever been taught is workable. Could she possibly be right? And then I started reading economics and then I suddenly heard a bunch of arguments that I had never heard before in my entire life. Arguments like, when you delay a good drug for seven years, you kill the number of people saved by the drug annually times seven. <laughs> All right. If a drug will save 10,000 lives in a year and the FDA delays it for seven years in order to establish the safety, the FDA just killed 70,000 people. Hmm. That's an argument that is logically ironclad. You really can't argue with it. Obviously, during COVID, suddenly people say, yeah, yeah we got to really improve vaccine quickly because otherwise a lot of people die. The same goes for every effective drug, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And the law and the logic is sound. So I just started reading these arguments that I had never heard in my entire life. I had never in my entire life heard that rent control could lead to a shortage of housing. Never in my entire life heard that the minimum wage could cause unemployment and so on. Right now, 
that was what just got me on my journey. I started off reading the economists that Ayn Rand recommended. So the hardcore free market economists like Ludwig von Mises. And so I really like that stuff. Uh, but once I was in college, then I learned about normal economics that said a lot of that stuff was wrong. And then I said, hmm, well, how do I reconcile this stuff? I spent many years just reading a lot of different perspectives in economics. Probably the mm. really big change in my thinking that, or the latest big change in my thinking was you know, late in grad school, early as a professor, I started thinking a lot more about human irrationality and what that means. And that was the inspiration behind my book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, especially this idea that in politics, people are just a lot crazier than they are in their personal decisions. It doesn't mean their personal decisions are great. God knows people make terrible personal decisions, but not at the level of what we see in politics where people are just voting for things that seem like total abject disaster with a big smile on their faces. Uh, so that was you know, one of the big changes. And again, that's where a lot of my evolution since then has just been really following through on what human rationality and its especially large role in politics means. And so much of this comes down to, yeah, government has immense power. It's really, it's totally has power to go and improve upon markets like, like that. So you can get that out of a textbook, common sense. I'm super happy to concede that because it's true. However, I also look back and say, you know how governments actually use their power? Nine times out of 10, they use it to make the market outcome worse. In a way that sounds good. That's the last key part that, for my mind, ties the whole story together and helps, it to, and helps me to understand what's going on in the world. I mean, just like one example. Uh, this is something I was just telling Danes about. I was, you know, my book was just translated into Danish. And I said, yeah, you know, you Danes, I know you feel like your democracy is really way superior to the, that in the U.S. and that your views are so much more reasonable than ours. So I'm going to go and tell you a way that you guys are even worse than we are. And they're like, oh, oh really? <laughs> you get your attention. <laughs> you get Dane's attention when you say something like that. You say, you guys are even worse than we are because you waste an even larger share of your budget on universal programs. But that means of programs where you just give money to everybody in the country, which I'll say, if you think about this for like 20 seconds, you'll see how abjectly stupid it is. If you were a billionaire and you wanted, and you had $7.5 billion to give away to charity, would you give a dollar to every person on earth? Does that sound like a wise use of your philanthropy? No, it's, it's idiotic. If you, uh, what you should do is find the most important causes where your money will do the most good and spend it all there and give zero to everyone else. That is what sensible redistribution looks like, where government takes money from people with more, and they find a place to spend it where we'll do a ton of good, and they put it all there. However, all real-world governments do something very different. All real world governments to have most of the redistribution just go to everyone so they can act like Santa Claus, right? Which makes sense in terms of your image and say, aren't I generous? I, I take care of every American senior. Yeah, 80% of them are perfectly able to take care of, your, care of themselves. You just wasted 80% of the money. Real smart government. Mm. And of course, <laughs> if you think about it more, you'd say, huh. If we got rid of this pretense of taking people's money and then giving it back to them when they don't even need the money, we could also have much lower taxes, much lower government spending, which means much better incentives. It's not just a wash where you get money from the government takes and the government gives back. 
It's one where they mess up people's incentives, and then they also go and take care of a bunch of people who are not charity cases. And this is not just the U.S. Like I said, Scandinavians Scandinavians are the worst of the worst on these ridiculous universal programs that are nevertheless Mm. ultra popular because they sound so crowd-pleasing. And yeah, like a lot of my thinking is no, they please the crowd because the crowd doesn't have, does not have its head screwed on properly. You thought about it for even a few seconds, you realize what a ridiculous farce this is, even though it's crazy popular. And I don't know any way to change people's minds on it other than just to say, come on. I, I think this is summed up. You had a really good quote. You said that markets are great at doing good things that sound bad and governments yeah. are great at doing bad things that sound good. I think this yeah. perfectly sums yeah. it up. But, um, you know, as, a, as an economist, you actually venture outside of, of just mm-hmm. typical econ topics. Mm-hmm. For example, you know, you weigh in on things like feminism. I have this yeah. book here of yep. yours. Yeah, it's, that, it's that's titled, me and my daughter on the cover, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And she's standing yeah, can, on, I, I noticed she's standing on some books and one of them is the blank slate, Yes, which oh, yeah. I love. That's, that's very sneaky. So I was actually read, reading this on, on, on the airplane and uh, a woman next to me who was decked out in like really expensive branded <laughs> items. She was older. She just kept giving me the dirty look. She was trying to look at the cover, look at me. And she was like, Ugh. you could tell that it was very unsettling. Um, mm-hmm. And indeed, you know, the title is very mm-hmm. provocative. Don't mm-hmm. be a feminist. Um, I know it's framed as a, a letter to your daughter, mm-hmm. a series of essays that are, 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 you know, meant to address her. So can you explain to us mm-hmm. the thesis of this book? Because this is bombastic. I, I'm sure you got some pushback just even writing. This oh, yeah. Book. I hope you have tenure. Yes. You do, oh, right? I, I do. I've had tenure yes. for almost 20 years now. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and I do believe in using tenure uh, to take a stand for co- unpopular causes that I think are intellectually really solid. You Especially when other work. people are yeah. being, intimid- being intimidated to keep their mouths shut. Really, I started, I've been writing the lead essay in this book of essays for about 10 years. As soon as my daughter was born, I'm like, well, demographically, she's real likely to be a feminist. So what do I tell her about this stuff? Also, I, mean, I, I think a lot of the, the, you know, the best things are things that the author was writing in their heads for many years, and they finally put pen to paper when they're good and ready, and that this is one such essay. You know, so... What I say in the essay is as follows. First of all, I say, well, what is a feminist even? All right, there is, a, if you go and look at dictionaries, a lot of them will just, ha- will just say, yeah, it's just the theory that women should be treated equally than men, uh, equally as men, you know, economically, politically, socially. And I say, hmm, well, that's an interesting definition. Let's go to public opinion and see whether it actually makes sense. So there, there was a major national poll where they went and asked people, First of all, are you a feminist or not? And second of all, ask them whether they agreed with the equality of men and women. And guess what? Well, almost all feminists agree that men and women should be equal. Also, almost all non-feminists agree. Like, like you know, way over 90% of non-feminists agree that men and women should be economic, political, social equals, which I say means that cannot possibly be the definition of feminism. It's like saying feminism is the theory the sky is blue. So yeah, well... Feminists do believe in the blueness of the sky. And you know what? So does everybody. So it's a terrible definition. Uh, what is a more sensible definition? That's one where I say, look, it's something like this. Feminism is the view that our society generally treats men more fairly than women. In theory, that our society generally treats men more fairly than women. Why is this a good definition? Well, first of all, almost everyone who self-identifies as a feminist 
believes that our society treats men more fairly than women. Second of all, out of people that don't identify, either almost all would be agnostic or they'll just say, no, I disagree. So that is the kind of definition that makes sense because it distinguishes the two views. Now notice, it distinguishes the two views without resolving what is actually the truth, which is also what a good definition does. If your definition builds in the truth of your view, that is a terrible definition. It's one where you're trying to use the dictionary to decide how the world is, and that's not the job of the dictionary. The job of the dictionary is to explain how words are used. It is the job of our eyes to figure out what's really going on. All right, so after going and laying that groundwork, I then say, all right, well, uh, we've got this definition that I think is pretty reasonable, and I think it does fit how people use the word. And then it comes down to the question, well, so who's right? Uh, this is where the fact that I'm an economist does give me some professional training because economists have put a lot of statistical work into questions like this. Questions like, why is there a pay gap between men and women? Right? Does the pay gap reflect actual unfair treatment of women where they are paid differently for the same work? Or is it rather a reflection of the fact that men and women do different kinds of work? And if they were doing the same kinds of work, they would be paid the same. All right, so what I do in the essay is I say, well, let's start off with just a list of all the main complaints about how women are allegedly treated less fairly than men. And again, that less fairly is important because no one's treated fairly all the time. If you just say, hey, I found a case in a society of 330 million people where one woman was mistreated. Yeah, well, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in the world. So it's got to be some general claim. It can't just be some idiosyncratic, I once knew a woman who suffered in some way. All right, so I go and I make a list of all the standard feminist complaints, which you guys know about. So complaints about work, complaints about division of labor in the home, complaints about objectification, mm -hmm. standard list. But then I say, yeah, there's also a bunch of complaints about how men are treated less fairly than women that we don't hear very often, but we ought to go and consider those too. That's what an even-handed consideration of the issue requires. You know, what, what, what would those be like? Well, could be things like 90% of all workplace fatalities are male. Hmm. You could see why someone might think that's unfair or very large majority of the people in prison are male, for example. All right, so I go and have a list of those. Uh, but then after I got those two, I could just say, well, you know, we've got two lists, they balance each other out, but that's a real cop-out. And that's where I say, well, I'm an economist, so I've got some statistical training on how to go and, and really probe more deeply into these complaints and see how much they hold water. Um, then what I do in much of the rest of the essays, I just go through them and say, really, almost all these complaints are grossly exaggerated. Men's complaints are exaggerated. Women's complaints are exaggerated. There's usually a much simpler explanation than unfairness going on. Things like you know, a lot of why women make less money than men is because they work fewer hours than men. Even when they're working full time, they're less likely to have the super intense jobs where you're working 60 or 70 hours mm -hmm. a week. Uh, you also have things like men are a lot more likely than women to do STEM. It's not like STEM fields say no women allowed here. It's that when given a choice, most women aren't very interested in STEM. All right, so I go through all of that. And then there's, you know, to my mind, sort of what like the most fun parts are like, well, dad, why do you even care? Why is this the essay that you wrote to me? And that's where I go into a lot of the deeper issues like what's, you know, what is the harm of going and falsely believing that men are treating you very unfairly? I say, yeah, well. There's a bunch of obvious problems, like it makes you bitter, 
right? It, you know, <laughs> if you falsely believe that that's your, that people in your society are treating you very unfairly, that is likely to lead to, first of all, a lot of self-pity, and secondly, to lead to antipathy towards others, especially men. And I say, look, I, you know, I don't want you to have these feelings. These feelings are not justified, and they are just a burden to carry through life. And I said, also, it leads you to treat other people unjustly, right? And and that's you know, going back to what you're originally talking about. Like, you know, your hope that I that your hope you hope that I have tenure. So one way in which the feminist movement really stands out compared to almost any other one is just the level of fear that they generate, right? So I've written a bunch of other controversial books. And for most of them, my friends don't bat an eye. They're like, yeah, well, you know, sorry, yeah, so you're writing a book against democracy. Great, right? So I did have a book called The Case Against Education, Why the Education System Was a Waste of Time and Money. And there, yeah. people said, like, aren't you a little worried that your school might get mad at you? I'm like, eh, a little bit, but I'm going to write it anyway. Actually, my university president took me out to lunch. And we had a pleasant conversation. I didn't change his mind about anything, but still, he didn't threaten me or anything. Far from it. But for this one, for Don't Be a Feminist, I had multiple friends staging many interventions saying, do not do this, Brian. This is going to be terrible for you. Right? Now, what's going on? Well, they're really afraid. Right? And why are they so afraid? I mean, I think there's a pretty obvious answer. People are afraid that feminists will be angry at them and that they are powerful, that they're culturally influential and they're very touchy. I mean, in the end, I feel like my friends have a more negative view of feminism than I do because like, I'm not as nearly as scared of them as they are. But my friends could be right. So, you know, like they could come and try to ruin my life. Uh, like I said, I've got tenure. So I think I'm the kind of person that just ought to stick his neck out, challenge the lightning to strike me. Mm-hmm. Now, if you read the book, the last thing I want, uh, that I want to do is to make anyone angry. My dream is a world where everyone is happy and we all have a pleasant conversation. And at the end, everyone says, yes, yes, you make very good points. Let's change our minds. That's my dream. Mm-hmm. I do not have a dream about making <laughs> yeah. anyone lose sleep. Like, like I, look, I know it's a long shot, but still, what I'm going for is never to anger anyone. What I'm going for mm-hmm. is to make people think and reassess and say, maybe I've been wrong my whole life. Maybe my whole worldview is mistaken. You've got me thinking about that. Now, today, I, I just put, put up a new piece on my Substack, so called Fear of Feminism, where I'm saying, you know, look, if I said hi to one of my kid's friends and they ran away in terror, I would say, well, did I do something to scare that kid? Like, I asked my kid, like, was there something I've done that would explain why the kid acts that way? Now, if all my kid's friends started running in terror whenever I said hi, I'd say, man, I thought I was being a nice guy to them, but obviously I'm coming off as an ogre. Similarly, when feminists see that some people are afraid of them, you'd think at least they wonder, what are we doing that's making people so scared? And if they see Mm -hmm. that there is widespread fear of them, that is where they'd really take a good hard look in the mirror and say, obviously, we're really coming off as ogres here. Right now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'd love to be proven wrong, but it seems like they're going for that. seems like they want There are complexities there, I think. Yeah. I think because it's it's an ideological position, mm-hmm. it's a it's a way of being, and it's a if if the dynamic you've bought into is that what you're doing is trying to take down mm-hmm. the power structure which is designed to oppress you, then any any sort of fear or anger will, will be interpreted, I think, mm-hmm. as oh, I'm doing my job, I'm mm-hmm. I'm making them nervous because I'm actually, you know 
making a dent here. Yeah, well, let's look so at, it's understandable look at the Mormons. Feel that. Yeah, so I'm not Mormon, but I was in a Mormon Cub Scout group as a kid. I've had a lot of good, good friends as Mormons. All right, no one's afraid of Mormons. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much you disagree with them. Almost everyone will say they're really nice. And does it mean yeah. that they have no influence? They are one of the fastest growing religious movements in human history by being mm. nice. Right. So the idea yeah, you know, right? is definitely a different if, approach. If you really yeah. put, talk to them, say, well, don't you think there's anything bad going in the world? Don't you think you need to take a stand against it? And all the Mormons I know will say, well, well sure, we need to take a stand against it. But we don't want to be come off seeming like mean people. You know, we just we, we like we like, like you know, we're here to go and share our love of Jesus Christ, and we're and we're just trying to exemplify the kinds of lives that we think people ought to live. And it's less like, mm-hmm. and that's why I love you guys, and that's why you <laughs> are loved. You know, the, yeah. you know, the, the official uh, Mormon Church took out an ad in the musical of the Book of Mormon, making fun of them. Right. That's yeah, the, you know, and, and and the idea that this shows that that, that they're not getting stuff done, they get stuff done. <laughs> it's just that yeah, well, they, do it with common decency. And I'd recommend right. everyone on earth, including probably above all fellow libertarians, that we emulate the Mormons because they've got the right formula for for you know, for winning hearts and minds. Yeah. But it's funny because you're kind of making Fair's argument for us. Okay. You oh, know, good. We're making oh, basically I, I this. Make it's an analogous people. argument. Yeah. <laughs> it's an analogous argument of look, there's a better way to approach these yeah. things that we're doing. Absolutely. But I wanted to, to I wanted to point point out something. You know, the the, the definition of feminism mm-hmm. that you brought up, the dictionary one, mm-hmm. where it's the the idea that society treats women less fairly than mm-hmm. men. Well, that's that, that's mine. Um, no, that's his. Dictionary. That's his definition. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's yours. Yeah. Sorry. So yeah. okay. So I can see that definition and I can see where you go with it. But I think there's another mm-hmm. thing that's going on okay. that maybe complicates things, which is that the reality is that nature treats mm-hmm. women less fairly mm-hmm. than men, and that that has practical, real consequences in our society. Mm-hmm. And and then the the idea then is to is to do something to mitigate that because it's mm-hmm. it's unfair fundamentally, right? So obviously the mm-hmm. biological clock, all those sorts of things, mm-hmm. you know, generally speaking, sorry. I don't have tenure, but generally speaking, men tend to be bigger, stronger, faster physically, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of stuff. Uh-huh. That has mm-hmm. an effect. All those things matter. They play a part in the way that society can even function, mm-hmm. not even just how we want it to, mm-hmm. right? So that seems to me to be baked into the situation and maybe mm-hmm. not addressed in any meaningful way. And that could be part of the reason why there's so many issues. What do you think of that? Well, I'd say two things. First of all, I'd say that if you just have a natural problem that has nothing to do with any other person, then the correct word in normal English is unfortunate and not unfair. Unfair carries a strong connotation of someone done me wrong, someone somewhere, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Uh, So that's where I would start with it. Meaning, you know, I say it's no more unfair to women that they have a biological clock than that it's unfair to me that I'm not seven feet tall, so I'll never be in the NBA. It's like it's unfortunate, perhaps, that I'm not tall enough to be in the NBA, but no one, yeah. no one was unfair to me. You know, unfair would be like I'm not allowed to play in the Olympics because uh, my my name starts, my last name starts with the letter C, right? But the reason right. why I haven't done well in the Olympics, I've never even come close to the Olympics. It's not the the rules are stacked against me; it's that I suck. Right. No, <laughs> no, right. Right. And but I think you need to go and say this is an unfairness of the universe. Other people owe it to me to correct this. 
I would just say that is an absurdly high standard for fairness where basically the world owes you a living. And yeah, I'd say that's yeah. just unreasonably high. Now, I would also say that if you were to say, look, nature deals women a worse hand, I would say, hmm, I totally disagree. It deals them a different hand. Again, to assess the net effect is really complicated mm-hmm. at minimum. So mm-hmm. like, well, so it deals them a hand where, you know, you know that's a good you point. say, look, you know, like women can generally have as many children as they want. Men, on the other hand, cannot. Men need to go and talk a woman into doing it, which is not that easy. Women, on the, women, on the other hand, like, you know, like, different, like if it all else fails, you really can go to sperm bank. Uh, to me, this is a really important part of life. There are a lot of guys that are just highly unattractive. Almost no woman likes them, and their odds of ever having kids are really low. Right. So that's one that's, thing I would start with. Uh, like another, another. I think there's even there. There's all this complexity, yeah. right? Because. So, so I, I get your point about, about unfair about versus. Uh, it, it's it would be much easier for a woman to go up to her biological maximum number of kids than a man, and by a factor of a hundred. Right, and and that's a result yeah, of the yeah. consequence that this is actually a direct consequence of the fact that sperm is cheap, right? So, so yeah. for every, like there's trillions and trillions of sperm, you guys can yeah. just produce every minute, and I'm stuck with like a certain number of eggs. But in that scarcity is where eggs are expensive, and so nature yeah. dealt us a hand. And I can get what maybe thirty thousand for my egg. Yeah. You're gonna have to what yeah. pay to jerk off in a cup, probably. Um, <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it, but yes. Yeah. Here's like another obvious one, which is that almost all women have a period of ten to twenty years where they are highly desirable, and a lot of people are interested in dating them, even if they take no effort. Almost no guys ever have that. Like, even if you are very handsome and successful, like you are almost never going to be at a point where women come up to you and say, "Wow, you're so fantastic! Can I date you?" Um, you know, there I'd say like yeah. most guys that are even above average just spend their lives with that never happening to them once. But again, now this is yeah, something where again, my point I, is I not that men are being treated unfairly. My point is that men and women get different hands, yeah. and to go yeah. and just say that the female hand is the inferior hand is totally jumping the gun, at least. Okay. Never mind. Men, men die. Men die yeah. sooner too. Their lifespans yeah, are shorter yeah. than females. Yeah, you know, like seven year gap. It's it. It is an enormous difference. And if it went the other way, we would be hearing about it all the freaking time. As some way, all right. That's that women are treated by our society. <laughs> all right. So the first thing I'll say is that I think I think you're you're very clearly correct about the the dating thing. Because any dating app, any woman on a dating app will tell you their inbox is constantly full. And any guy on a dating app, with very few exceptions, will tell you yeah. their inbox is almost always empty. Yeah. So, you know, that, that could be, you know, that's an anecdotal thing maybe. Yeah. No, no, no. There, there's hard social science research on these dating yeah. apps. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah. So, you know, clearly I, I the, the, the dynamic results is, I think there's one, one where they showed one to seven rankings of attractiveness. I think out of 2,000 uh, guys... Exactly zero were rated seven by anyone. There are zero women consider, or zero men considered by the entire universe of oh women gosh. to be at the top at, at, at seven out of seven. Never, women yeah, never yeah. give seven ever because it's not even necessarily that. It's also that the sevens don't go on dating apps because they don't have to because they're, yeah, they're, 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 they're not they're or whatever. Yeah, so there's like ten. Of them. You know, yeah. there's like ten sevens on Earth, perhaps. Right. But so, okay. So I take your point about the, the unfair versus unfavorable thing. I think that's a fair point, but, but I think that it it becomes unfair once you enter the paradigm of 
the the society we currently have and the 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 incentives that are set in place and the way that things actually work, it actually becomes unfair when two different groups of people have similar goals given the society they're in. And because of the hands they're dealt, they cannot achieve those goals in, in equivalent ways, right? There are many more sacrifices that women would have to make to be as successful as a man would. And by, by the definition of success that we've all agreed upon, in this society, right? There are different forms of success. Yeah. There are different ways that people can be happy and whatever, but there is a rat race and we've all kind of just been signed into it. Mm. And fundamentally, there are just ways that not everyone's going to be able to run it in the same way. Mm. And I think that's probably where I'm trying my best to, yeah. to encapsulate what, what that other perspective is. But that's that seems to me to be what's actually happening is I can't do the things that I have been primed mm-hmm to want to do, I can't succeed at the things that I've been primed to want to succeed at because of these fundamental differences. And so if if this is really what we should be doing, if this is really what we should be pursuing, then we should be trying our best to even the playing field so that despite these fundamental things that I can't do anything about, I can still compete equally. Right. What would you hmm. say there? Wow. I mean, I, there's so many things I would say. I mean, the fundamental one is the standard is just absurdly high and no way, no how. <laughs> line in the sand, no way. This would mean, for example, that if someone's unattractive, the world owes it to them to find them a girlfriend. Like, no. Like, that is, is it, <laughs> like, that is unfortunate. I sympathize, but you are not entitled to any, to, to any pity dates. You're not entitled to anything from others, from, from strangers. I, like, it might be nice if someone would go and help you out and give you some pointers, but the idea that, we, we, that our society owes it to you to do something about this is just ridiculous. Uh, this is total. Well, no, not that. Like I say, this is total special pleading because it is only a very short list of groups with such complaints that anyone cares about, and most are just told tough luck. Nobody cares about you. So unattractive, <laughs> like unattractive men. There is zero social effort to go and do anything to help them, and nobody cares. Pretty much. And, but they can just well, be successful. Yeah, is, yeah, again, you might be say, successful. fine, but, yeah, fine, yeah, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, just become a billionaire, and then that solves the yeah, problem. Uh, it does. Well, that's a great example, though. That's a great example. So if you are a man who is not physically attractive, mm-hmm. right, you have other options. Yeah, you options can be that are almost impossible for most people to ever attain. They'll say, look, I'm below average IQ. Oh. I'm not very enterprising. I'm unattractive. What hope do I have? I mean, you have 10 fingers, you could play guitar. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. you can write, you can write bad yeah. poetry yeah. and women tend to be much more uh, forgiving. Yeah. And they're like, oh, it's cute that he's trying. Think about you, you have a cousin yeah. that girl don't like, and you start telling him this stuff. Is this going to make him feel better? Will this sound realistic to him? No, it sounds, it's just something that a person who, who does have a lot of good options like you, Angel, <laughs> is going to uh, say to someone that does not have such good options. But again, I would also step back and say, look, the idea that our society is primed us for one kind of success is absurd. Like, yeah, like we are not, like, it is not that everyone in society is looking to, to, to become fabulously rich. The normal thing actually is that people are looking for some kind of work-life balance. That is the normal thing to do. It is a few weirdos that give up everything good in life in order to become fabulously rich. Uh, there's a great book mm-hmm. that I referenced called Why Men Are More, which just lists 25 reasons why men make more money than women. All along the lines of men go and accept unpleasant working conditions in order to make more money. Right now, when you now the point of the author is not to sell, tell women that things are hopeless. It's the other one around saying, "Look, well, if you want to make a lot of money, do what men do." Although once you find out how men succeed, you might say, "I don't want it that bad." 
Mm-hmm. Also, if you were a man and reading it, you might say, why am I trying so hard to succeed? It doesn't really help me that much. Like, like, so, I mean, like, honestly, like, you know, I've told my kids this many times that my kids could either be billionaires and childless, or they could make a middle income and give me four grandkids. I don't even have to think about it. Give me four grandkids. I don't care whether you're a billionaire. That's not very, that's not very important to me. This is not, you know, mm-hmm. did my society prime me for this? I don't think so. You know, like someone says, my society's prime me says, look, you're an adult. You're an independent person. There's a lot of different voices about the best way to live. Why don't you make up your own mind about it instead of just saying, I have to do what I imagine is our, the voice of our society, which is actually a very diverse set of voices. There's a lot of people you could mm-hmm. listen to. If you don't like this path that you feel like is being pushed on you, don't do it. I mean, the idea that you're more worried about what your society thinks than your parents, right? Like, Where's that from? Mm. And then, you know, finally, of course, there's a lot of things that are easier, kind of forms of success that are easier for women than men. Like I said, like easier for a woman to go and get a romantic partner, easier for a woman to start a family, right? And yet there's no real interest in going and helping men out on those dimensions. So I think this is really just special pleading where there's a few groups of people think of as special that should get extra help. And then there's a lot of effort made to go and change the rules in their favor. But it's not a general principle about cosmic injustice. Rather, it is a very specific principle about how there's a list of groups that I really care about a lot. And you know, honestly, I'd say that it's the groups that we don't talk about that we should feel sorrier for. If people are talking mm-hmm. about your group, at least there's awareness. People take your concern seriously. I mean, the amount of, of insults that are heaped on incels, it's like, look, don't they have enough problems already without being mocked? Mm-hmm. Like, look, it's tough. Right. All right. So, yeah. Well, also the mocking yeah. is just counterproductive, right? The mocking yeah. is not going to help. It's yeah. going to exacerbate. Yeah. That. Well, so yeah. I mean, it, it helps if your goal is to go and pick up, find a helpless group and pick on them. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I think, a lot of what's going on within cells. Like there really are a lot of people, mostly guys who just feel totally alone and hopeless. Uh, I think it's generally unrealistic. So, you know, that's something where, you know, I wouldn't tell them to go and learn to play the guitar. If I had an himself <laughs> friend, I would say, let's go and work on your smile. Let's go and work on just having a more positive attitude. Let's work on talking to more women. That's what I would tell them. Yeah, I would, yeah. I would too, for the record. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that's a lot more really too many people play guitar yeah. as it is. I think you hit the nail on the head with this argument that just because, you know, to, to make a claim that something on net is, is better or that these people on net are treated more unfairly than another group is very difficult to make. And it's not, it's not thought about, you know, in the way that's mm-hmm. very systematic usually. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I often ask women, fellow female friends of mine, if you could change place with a man, <laughs> would you? And, you know, if it's true that male privilege mm-hmm. is, is orthodoxy, mm-hmm. then, you know, the answer should be unambiguous. It should be yes. Yeah. Most of the time the question is, well, I don't know, what race am I? Uh, how much money do I have? How tall am I? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the fact that you had to ask all yeah. these follow-up questions means that it's really not that straightforward. I mean, we, we know from OkCupid data, for example, that, you know, if, if you're just concerned about dating, the successes of dating, being an Asian man is probably not very good. Mm-hmm. But if you're, you know, looking at median wage, being an Asian man is very good, right? Yeah. So, so there are all these different areas in which we, <laughs> yeah. different groups succeed at different rates. It really sucks to be an Asian man again, because <laughs> even though you're doing well, you are doing way worse than you would on your merits. Right, right. That's that's exactly it. And one of the most powerful arguments you make about you you, you do you do actually address this priming issue. Yeah. 
is that, you know, if you think that men are actually just prime, for example, to be in STEM, you know, more by society and women are not, well, why do we not talk about priming when it comes to the, the negative outcomes, right? The distribution yeah. of outcomes for, for, for males mm -hmm. at the lower end. Why are they more oh, likely yeah. to be drug addicts? Why are they more likely to drop out of school? Suicide, Why are they more likely? homelessness. Yeah, suicide. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Jail. So the, where's the priming there? And and I think that's a, yeah. that's a that's a very powerful argument. Mm -hmm. So I'm really I'm really glad you uh, you wrote this book. Um, I'm not sure we have time to go into uh, your the other book that you wrote that is well, well now it's it's another one it's it's another controversial one open borders. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I take it every, whenever I mention this word, people in my Twitter feed will say. No one actually believes that. No one. Like, and, and these are, you know, centrist Democrat types that, that, that are trying to make this yeah. argument. But yeah, see, somebody believes in it and he wrote a whole book. Oh, yeah, totally. Bizarrely, there are, there are conspiracy theories that I'm really anti-immigration. I wrote the book to discredit immigration. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. As anyone amazing. who knows me personally will tell you, but so like, just the... The, the level of bizarre conspiracy theories around that book, um, I, I was just like, wow, people really have an active imagination. So why do you think it's such a hot button issue today? Hmm. Yes, well, it is true that most people who are accused of believing in open borders don't. I've done a bunch of debates on open borders where the opponent says, well, people like Brian and Hillary Clinton who favor open borders, and I'm like, Hillary Clinton does not favor open borders, and you know that. <laughs> Right. All right, fine. And I have actually even gotten concessions in a debate, which are very scarce commodities. All right, fine. Uh, but yes, uh, I mean, for me, like, like you know, really the book comes down to we have a lot of arguments in favor of immigration. And then there's the logical question of, well, if immigration is as great as social scientists say, why not have open borders? And I think the answer is we should have open borders. Uh, right. And, and this is not one like anarcho-capitalism where I think you really need to get all of your ducks lined up in a row for it to work. This is one where I'm ready to push the button right now. And I mm -hmm. say it would work fine right now, uh, not, which does not mean there wouldn't be a bunch of people complaining about how terrible it is and there wouldn't be a bunch of news stories, but it would actually be fine. It's just that I don't think the media is a good measure of, or, or by the way, we're complaining or a good measure of whether something's working. I mean, I, mean, I would say that the economics comes down to this. This is something we can see with our own eyes. It is obvious and undeniable. We can take a, a Haitian worker who shines shoes in Port-au-Prince, move into Miami, and the next day he can easily be making 10 times as much money as he was back home. He doesn't even need to learn English. He can continue speaking French Creole. Simply moving one human being from a poor country, rich country, dramatically increases earnings. And in terms of basic economics, there's really only one credible explanation, which is that his productivity is much higher in the rich country than in the poor country. This is really obvious for something like agriculture, where you move a Mexican farmer to a U.S. farm, and you see suddenly he's growing way more food than he was, even though he's the same guy. Or moving from a Mexican, a Mexican manufacturer to U.S. manufacturing, it's totally clear that we can get this a massive increase in the production of the world by just moving people from countries where productivity is low to countries where productivity is high. Most of the reason why people in poor countries are poor is not that there's anything wrong with them. Most of the reason is that they're in the wrong place, right? They're in a place where humans in general are unproductive, where if they just forced us to move to Haiti, we'd probably be unproductive too, because it's just a messed up society. All right, then the real question is, huh, all right, so if we have this magic bullet for solving one person's poverty and not by redistribution, this is by increasing someone's production. 
You can go and solve the problem of poverty by making a human being more productive and thereby enriching the world and himself simultaneously. That's the whole idea of economic growth. That's what we see with one case of immigration. And then the only question is, is it scalable? Can we move a thousand Haitians to the US and still have this work? Yeah. Can we move a million? Yeah. Can we move a billion? That's where I'll say, depends upon how quickly we move them. Right. <laughs> All right, yes. We moved a billion overnight, which is not even possible. We moved a billion overnight, then yeah, people would just clog the streets and we and we would die because we couldn't drive anywhere anymore. But can we multiply our population threefold in the course of decades? We've done it multiple times before. You know, the U.S. right now is a population of about 100 times what it had in 1789. All right, 100 times. We, it's totally doable over the course of decades. Right? And hmm. so I say that, you know, that, that is, you know, so this is quite realistic. And then finally, you know, there is the moral question of, like, you know, well, isn't this our country and only have a right to keep anybody out that we want to keep out? And that's where I'll say, well, hmm. When you go and keep an immigrant out, this isn't really keeping him out of just of your stuff. It's keeping him out of somebody else's business, keeping him out of someone else's apartment, keeping him out of someone else's store. You know, the point of immigration restrictions is to say it's illegal for an American employer to hire a willing immigrant, right? And I say, look, what business is it of our society if that if that transaction happens, right? It should be up to the owner whether he wants to do it. If I want to rent my apartment to an immigrant, it should be up to the owner of the apartment. If I run a store, it should be up to the owner of the store, right? When people say, like, this is our country, we have a right to decide what happens here, I say, well, that's socialism, man. That's saying that the country is the collective property, the citizenry, and we, the people, should decide what happens in our country. Like, by that standard, mm -hmm. it's okay for Saudi Arabia to say that only Sunni Islam can be practiced in Saudi Arabia, because this is our country. We decide how things are, right? So, so yeah, like, that is the premise, again, we'll just say, no, it's... Like blind in the sand. If you're just going to say, like, yeah, sure, immigration might be great, but we have a right to stop it. Say, look, it's one thing to say that it, it's so terrible that this overrides the right to go and do this, but it's got great effects, and it's just a matter of the individual wants to do business. And I'd say, look, stand aside. It's none of your business whether another business, whether someone else is, else hires somebody. Wait, hmm. but what 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 about? overburdening the welfare state, which in the United States, we don't right. really have that much, but say Europe, which, yeah. you know, I, I, I have a feeling, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that a big part of the rise of more right-leaning governments across Europe from Scandinavia to right now mm -hmm. Italy is in part due to these narratives mm -hmm. about immigration. And, mm -hmm. and Europe has far more generous welfare programs. So mm -hmm. how do you respond to that? Yeah. I'd say actually U.S. is a lot more generous than Europeans think, and Europe is, is not as generous as Americans think. So like we're, we're not nearly as far as stereotypes would have it. I know a lot of Europeans who think America doesn't have a welfare state at all, and it's like, uh, no, let me just show you the, the trillions of dollars that government spends on, on redistribution in the United States. So uh, now in the book, I go over a lot of the numbers for the U.S. and just say that well, you know, overall, it looks like, according to the most boring vanilla estimates, that the immigrants that we're currently taking are net positive. Uh, if you narrow it down and look at how about like elderly, low education immigrants, then they are a net negative. Uh, this is one where I'll say, first of all, like this negative is just not that big compared to the other economic gains. And then, yes, and then secondly, so like you know, if that's the complaint, then why is that we isn't that we don't just focus on restrictions on the welfare state? Why not put limitations 
time limits or nativity limits, something that we already do in many ways. And again, you know, when I meet people who are worried about this, my question is always, why are you pushing so energetically to reduce immigration instead of taking all your energy and narrowly putting it like a laser beam on restricting welfare eligibility? Right. And in that to me would be a more would be a sensible response. Again, you know, the, the, the complaint, there, there's a lot you know, I understand it. I mean, it's it's one where, of course, if you pushed it too hard, it's like, well, should we deny the right of free reproduction to people who are statistically likely to have kids on welfare? Right. And that's be like, no, that's such a basic issue of human freedom, we shouldn't do it. Well, if it's such a basic issue of human freedom then why does that not matter when there's a Russian guy who's trying to flee because he doesn't want to die in Ukraine? And so that seems like a pretty basic issue for him and to say, well, we just crunched the numbers and you might go on welfare, so can't come, sorry. Like It seems like there is a much better way of doing it. I am very happy to say the countries in the world that are most open to immigration are the Gulf monarchies, plus Singapore. Singapore is the most open democracy. Which, uh, by the way, I don't know your view. My view is Singapore is a democracy, and people say otherwise are just slandering Singapore. Oh no, it is a democracy. Yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. Okay, it's good. not competitive. Right. It's not competitive, yeah. but it is. A yeah, democracy. but you know, it's, it's like a lot of U.S. cities where the Republicans don't win because everyone hates them. Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. It's exactly yeah, it doesn't, that. Doesn't mean that it's not democratic. It just means that the other party exactly. is so unpopular they can't win. But that's you know, democracy does not guarantee you that alternation alternation of power. Yeah. So but anyway, the main thing that places like Singapore and the Gulf monarchies do is they very heavily restrict the welfare state for immigrant workers, which does reduce a lot of the resentment against them. And I think that is a really great compromise for letting more immigrants in. At uh, the same time, I'll but, say- But, but that, these immigrants have no, no path to citizenship. So, so mm-hmm. you're right. It's, it's these, this is, we're talking yes. about you know, legal yeah. immigration, not mm-hmm. asylum seekers. Yeah. These are people that secure mm-hmm. work visas to mm-hmm. come into the country yeah. to work. And they usually send money back to Bangladesh mm-hmm. or wherever they're from. Yeah, which, which is a great system. And again, I would say, like, I don't have any strong view on whether there should be a path to citizenship. I'd say 99% of the value of immigration okay. is the right to live, the right to work. The other stuff is really just surrounding error that people pretend is super important, but it's not. You know, like I've got a German colleague who's been in the U.S. for like 30 years now, hasn't made any effort to naturalize. Why? Because like that's a pain in the neck and he doesn't care about U.S. elections. But what he does care about is the right to live and work here, which is totally fundamental to his whole standard of living. Right. But the illegal, the illegal immigration tends to cloud this mm-hmm. entire discussion. Yeah. And you can yeah. see from what, what's happening with the news and, you know, with the recent stunts by, by the governor of Florida to, mm-hmm. to do, send these plane loads of people into Martha's Vineyard. By the way, the optics of that is just remarkable. Yeah. And, yeah. and so this is really about a different kind of immigration than, mm-hmm. than I think what, what you're referring to that the Gulf states and yeah. Singapore generally yeah. does. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd say the difference is that Mexicans can't go and do a Gulf monarchy kind of immigration. If they could legally just go and come here on a bus and get work papers, almost no one would want to go through the desert paying paying thousands of dollars to Cody and risking death. Right. The, re, you know, the reason why we have illegal immigration is because there's so many people who have no good legal way to get here. And the idea that they can just that they could just get in line and get here in any reasonable amount of time is false. Unless you've got very close blood relatives in the US or you marry a US citizen or something like that, the odds of a Mexican ever getting into the US are basically zero legally. So yeah, that's why they come illegally is because they can't come legally. Um, you know, the only reason to come, you know, like if you could do it like in Singapore, then the only reason to come illegally is if you actually are planning on being hitman or something. 
But again, of course, almost <laughs> nobody. Uh, if you just want to work on a farm, if you could just get on a bus with, on a, with no hassle, of course they do that. But we, we just don't have any system like that. And, and, you know, like, there is an idea that people have, well, I'm not against immigration. I'm just against illegal. And then I say, okay, well, what if we just made the illegal legal? Would that be okay? And I've never gotten a yes response to that. Well, what about what about the values argument that that you know when you when you just scale up immigration wholesale mm-hmm. like that you know you're importing people and that might change the constitution of the makeup of the country it actually will mm-hmm. but but attendant to that change is is a value change in values what if mm-hmm. it what if you import so many people from you know say like the Middle East and they mm-hmm. they don't believe in free speech and then mm-hmm. that changes the the constitution of your country what mm-hmm. what is your your argument so. First of all, it's a totally reasonable concern. It really comes down to we've got to look at the numbers and see what's actually going on. Uh, what I say is this could be a reason to say we're worried about let, about a country with, with a low population letting in a whole bunch of people from another very different country immediately. right? Uh, for a large country that's going to be getting people from a lot of different countries, then again, I would not be worried at all. Uh, at least, you know, very low level worry. Again, it's a question of like, will English, well, like, you know, it's a really simple one. Will English remain the language of the United States? If we let in a billion people from, um, you know, from Mandarin speaking reason to China tomorrow, then English will not be the, the language of the United States anymore. If, however, over the course of a century, we let in the same number, English will, because each generation is going to need to learn English in order to succeed. And by the time that the last group is coming, we'll just be a huge English speaking country with a lot of people of Chinese ancestry here. So that's the way that it works for language. Almost no one really is going to argue with you too much about that one. You can take in it. You know, U.S. has taken in massive, massive numbers of non-English speakers, and their kids have always learned English without with very little problem. This is true even for Spanish right now. Second-generation people from Spanish-speaking countries almost all have fluent English. It's just their parents that have trouble. Now, in terms of other kinds of cultural changes, so you know there are some. I spend a lot of time just looking at the data and saying they're mostly exaggerated, right? So it's not that there aren't any. And then I would also just say that there are a lot of cultural attitudes that Americans have right now, right? Say it's just not clear that these are really good attitudes. In many ways, (laughs) I prefer the attitude that immigrants have. So there's a lot of complaining among people in the business world about how millennials are super entitled and are bad workers because they don't, their goal is not to contribute to the team and add value, but to complain. There is a standard view among employers. They will tell you off the records, which they love hiring immigrants. Because immigrants do not have an attitude of entitlement. Immigrants say, yes, sir, with no irony. And so in a lot of ways, they're good. You know, they're very good workers. Hispanic males have a higher labor force participation rate than white males. Then like in that way, they are more bourgeois than people whose ancestors have been here for a very long time. Um, in terms of things like you know, two parent households. Right, so that's one where Asian immigrants crush white immigrants, or not white immigrants, mm-hmm. crush native-born whites. Yeah. Right, and again, to go and say, well, they're messing up our values. Well, maybe we can learn something from them. Maybe they got mm-hmm. something good to teach. <laughs> um, so I would also say that, and just you know, like at least be open to the possibility that our current culture is not the pinnacle of of awesomeness. I mean, I mean now this is one where I also do step back and say, you know, there's been so much cultural change that has nothing to do with migrants that people just totally accept. So, you know, my dad is 84. He's born in 1938. Do you think he likes the way America is right now? Do you think he feels like he's part of this culture? Right. He does not, right? And what happened? What happened is that his generation 
failed to go and pass along their values to younger generations and now things are different. Is everything better? I don't Well, you could argue, I don't think everything's better. I think there's some ways where his generation had better views, a lot of ways where I think my generation has better views. Of course, everything after me is worse, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't even think that. Yeah. Or like I have a lot of friends who are much younger than me and like, yeah, like a lot of ways I get along with them better because they're more mm-hmm. curious, more, you know, like not so set in their ways. They like tell me new things like, huh, I, I learn more from younger people because they're not just telling me the same thing that I've heard from everyone else. So, I mean, I would just mm-hmm. say that you know, once you realize that cultural change is just a part of a free society and well, like, like the thing to really focus on is cultural competition there's a lot of different ideas competing. And if you think your idea is so great, you ought to sell it, not just go and say, oh, this is terrible. Meaning in, with, 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 for generational change, which is obviously enormous, I mean, I will say that generational change in the last 30 years, it's just bigger than I would have thought possible. The change is, like I will say, it's at the 99th percentile of change in social views. There are a lot of social views. I just said, this is the way humanity is, will always be this way. And I was so wrong. I'm like, wow. Hmm. Right now, could be changed for the worse, but then again, maybe not. And we should look at it case by case and see. Hmm. On that note, I know we're running out of time, but I want to make sure we ask you the final question we ask all our guests. Our focus at FAIR is to provide what we call a pro-human approach Mm -hmm. to so many of the issues that we've talked about, so many issues that are out there today that are extremely divisive and seem to be antithetical to a humanistic Mm -hmm. or human-centered approach. Uh, so just to get your sense of what does pro-human mean to you, how do you contextualize or conceptualize that, and how can other people adopt that perspective and, and enact it in their own day-to-day lives? I would say that to me it just means you know, wishing you know, strangers well, this whole you know, wanting to see other people succeed, wanting to see other people happy, you know, assuming the best of other people that you haven't met. Yes, it's true. There are some bad people in the world. But just to say, let's just start with the assumption that the other person that you're meeting is a nice, decent person and that you could have a good conversation with them. Um, maybe you're wrong, but I think this is a great and largely self-fulfilling starting point for interacting with other people is just to assume the best until you've got some strong evidence otherwise. And you know, then after that, like you know, once you get the strong evidence otherwise, again, usually much more fruitful to say, this is a bad match rather than this is a bad person does not mean that there aren't some bad people. There's Kim Jong-un. Mm. Yeah. I've told my son we'll have, we will have a party when he dies. But, <laughs> however, <laughs> uh, yes, day, like, like the official school holiday with Kim Jong-un dies, but most people are nothing like that monster. And mm. so just, just, you know, just, just think about that too. To like, you know, like always try, you know, you know like I would just say like to, like have your default emotion towards other people be friendliness, right? And I say this not because it comes naturally to me. I've worked on this, I've tried to improve. Mm-hmm. It does not come naturally to me. I had a terrible attitude in high school. I've tried to go and become a better person and grow. Uh, I hope I've succeeded. Mm. So to, to paraphrase you and, and, sh- and sort of condense that, be a Mormon, not a feminist. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Brian Kaplan, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspective. It's it been, great it been fantastic. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. 
If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune into Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.